thankful to be here this morning. I apologize for, for my lateness. We've been tied up with a wedding yesterday and too little sleep, and I overslept this morning and then ran into unexpected traffic, but I'm glad to be here. I uh, want to think about this morning the gift of the ministry of the gospel, of pastors and teachers, of the preached word of the gospel, and how it is that God has ordained that uh, the ministry of the word be perpetuated uh, in the world and in the church, and to look at what the scripture has to say about the ministry of the church, uh, and hopefully how those lessons apply to us today. We're all familiar with and often quote what we call the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, and I want us to think about that. We'll go to the Lord in prayer in just a moment, but as the eleven went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to meet together and to worship you. And Father, we worship you through singing songs that we believe are sound and expressions of our heart and our desire and our faith in you. Through prayer and Father, through reading your word, we thank you for giving us the inspired word, the word that is authoritative, the word that is inerrant, the word that is suitable to all of our needs and applies to every decision, every trial, every trouble that we encounter in life. Father, we thank you for giving us the ability to believe, to trust, and to look to you, and Father, to worship you in your word in accordance with truth. Father, we ask that you be with us this morning, that you bless our time together. I ask your blessing upon this church and all those who make it up, Father, that your name would be magnified here, that your people would rejoice in truth and would go forth and share that truth with others, Father, that you would receive the glory you so richly deserve and, and will receive. And Father, we give you praise, we give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what I want us to glean from just our base consideration of what Jesus had to say here is really found in that last sentence or expression, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. There's been a lot of discussion about what is intended in this commission and to whom it is given, and it's obvious that he specifically names the 11 disciples that were present with him when he spoke those words. But the reality is, as became clear as one after the other, these 11 passed away and died, the word continued. And what Jesus had stated here was, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Now, Jesus spoke these words after his resurrection from the dead, after he was ministering for a period of time with his disciples, and had told them many things, and this is essentially the same as what we read in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus ascends up on high. And, of course, the angels come down and ask the men standing there, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus that you've seen us in will come in like manner. He's going to descend. 
And the question is, what are you doing standing, gazing up? Go be about the business he's commanded you to do. And that business was to go and to teach, to go and to preach. So then we turn over to the book of Ephesians, and the Apostle Paul has something to say about the church, but he pivots quickly to this gift, this ministry of the word, and I think it does a lot to help us understand how the commission was applied, what was intended by it, how it was understood by the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, after speaking of the need to respect one another and to acknowledge our need one for another, the apostle writes by inspiration and says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now just stopping there for a moment, when we read that Old Testament prophecy, when he had ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men, our mind immediately goes to the gift of salvation, right? That's what he rose for, for our justification. We think about the work that he did on the cross, and we think specifically about the gift of life that is ours through Jesus Christ. And that's where my mind, when I first read this text, goes, and I think that's what the Holy Spirit's going to say. But interestingly, that's not at all what he says. He says this Old Testament text, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men, means something entirely different. In fact, in verse 11, he says, and he gave, that is the gift was, some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. The gifts that Christ gave when he ascended up on high in the context of this text is he gave the ministry of the word. And he gave it parsed out between different gifts. First, he gave apostles. Well, what were the 11? Who were the 11 to whom Christ said, go into all the world and teach all things that I've taught you? Who was it that he sent? Well, it was apostles. He gave some apostles and he gave some prophets and some evangelists. And those gifts are manifest. They're shown forth in the book of Acts. In fact, if we turn through the Acts of the Apostles, we see the promulgation of these gifts. We see these individuals who fit this gift structure. We have the apostles there at Jerusalem, and they go forth and they preach. It was Peter, the apostle, who first went and preached to Cornelius, for example. We have that example given to us. We have evangelists. We have Philip the evangelist. We have prophets that are referenced in the book of Acts. So there are these gifts. And finally, he gave some pastors and teachers. And pastor and teacher is something that developed as the churches were constituted. And that's what we want to talk about later this morning as we look at the gift of the ministry of the church, pastors and teachers. And the reality is, as we look through the history of the church, we see that these first gifts, these gifts of the apostles, that was a gift that was for the establishment of the New Testament church. It was an authoritative gift. It was a gift that was given by God, whereby these apostles had great authority committed to them by Christ, but that authority was something that was restricted to them and to those individual gifts. And we could argue over whether there were only 12 or 13 
13 or 14 who had this authority and this power. There are several called apostles, men sent of God, but that's an authority structure that wasn't for the long term in the church. It was the preaching of the gospel that was to continue until the end of the world. And the preaching of the gospel that Christ was to be with. The evangelists seemed to have a special gift and power and a gift that was a ministry that was beyond the local congregation. A ministry that was to go forth and plant churches and establish believers and establish churches. There were some prophets, those who were given an understanding of future events, special revelation that was given to protect and to preserve the church. These were part of the miraculous gifts of that first century church, given for the church's preservation and establishment. But the churches, when established, were given pastors and teachers. And a sign of a healthy church is the presence of pastors and teachers, of elders in the plural, of men who are brought up and raised up by God to proclaim the gospel, who have a desire for the study of the word, for understanding of the scripture, and are able to then teach that word to others. And that's a gift that has grown up within the local church. And it's the pastor and teacher gift that is a gift that God has continued giving, that perpetuates as long as the world stands within the church. It's not a gift that is a man-centered gift. It's not something where a man decides he wants to enter into this work. It's a gift that's called by God, prepared by God. And we'll look at that some more later on this morning. So the apostle, by inspiration, writes to the Ephesian church, and he says that he gave gifts to men. And these gifts that he gave included apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And these separate gifts, these distinct gifts, are all given for the exact same purpose, the exact same reason. And the reason is this, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. What do we learn from this? Well, we learn that the perfection or the completion of the saints and the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ is accomplished through the ministry of the word. Oh, that churches today would understand this truth. The building up of the church is not through the acquisition of of entertainment venues. It's not through uh, the promotion of new ideas. It's not through adapting to society and finding out what people want to hear or see or do. Rather, the edification, the building up of the church of God is through the ministry of the word. The more that we can understand God's word, the more that we can dig into God's word, the more that we can desire an understanding of God's word, the stronger we're going to be and the more unified we're going to be. And the ministry is God's appointed means of building his church. The ministry is his appointed means. It's a gift of God for the edification of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The desire for the church of Jesus Christ is that we come to the unity of the faith. There's a lot that's done in order to promote unity. There's a lot who say they desire unity and they desire peace. They desire unity in the household of God. And often the way we seek unity is by 
diffusing conversations that need to be had. We desire to find unity by simply avoiding difficult conversations or discussion, but that's not what God's word says. God's word says the unity comes through the ministry of the word of God. It comes through tackling questions and issues head on, taking it to the source. And we find that example in scripture as disunity arises in one church after another. The, the, the answer is found in the word of God. And the answer is found by taking that difficulty and addressing it and seeking the answer through the word. So the ministry of the word till we all come in the unity of the faith. You know, there's a lot of times that we as believers decide what sounds good to us. And we have good intentions and we want to do the right thing. And we want to be compassionate and we want to be caring and we want to, we want to be winsome and we want to encourage people to come among us, to be around us, to be a part of us. And we do that by avoiding the hard topics. We do that by avoiding the action that's so necessary by the word of God. The Corinthian church experienced that. All they wanted was unity. All they wanted was peace. And to maintain that unity and peace, they just ignored problems as they crept up again and again in their church. Till finally the word of God came to them and said, you need to act because your lack of action is responsible for many among you being sick and some of you being dead. And your lack of action is causing the, the displeasure of God to fall not on the individual, but on your church. Till we all come to the unity, come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The knowledge of the Son of God. The preached word of the gospel presents to us the knowledge of the Son of God. You know, if we know Christ the way we desire to know Christ, Everything else is going to fall in place. Because if we know Christ, we're going to desire to be like Christ. And if we're like Christ, everything is right with the world. And sometimes we don't think about that because our version of what's right doesn't necessarily match God's way. That was the problem the apostles had originally. Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Here I'm going to suffer many things. There I'm going to be, be beaten. I'm going to be killed. Be it not so to thee, Lord. Be it far from thee, Lord. Jesus says, you don't savor the things that are of God, the things that are of men. Jesus Christ lived a difficult life, a life filled with trials, filled with suffering, but a life that was a perfect life. And Jesus Christ was satisfied with everything that he experienced and everything that happened in his life. Jesus Christ wasn't sorrowful when People went away from his preaching and didn't believe. And he wasn't in agony when he was left with only his disciples standing by. Jesus Christ was confident in the word that he spoke because he knew it was true. And Jesus Christ was able to stand and say, I do always those things which please my Father which is in heaven. He was able to say that with confidence. Well, how can we live with that kind of confidence and that kind of hope? By knowing Jesus Christ. By understanding that he's Lord, that he's in charge. It's not for us to figure out the outcome. It's only for us to obey and to trust and to follow his word. And we find him in his word. And that's why we desire the preaching of the gospel. That's why we desire the word and the understanding and the ministry of the word. The other thing about the ministry of the word is this. Jesus Christ tied his own presence to the preaching of the word. He did that in the commission. He said, you go and you preach. You go to all nations and you preach and you teach. And you teach the things that I've commanded you. And then he says, 
Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. There's a difference between preaching and simple teaching. There's a difference between preaching and lecturing. There's a difference between preaching and simply reading the word. All too often Christians think, well, as long as I read my Bible every day, I don't have any need for preaching. I don't have any need for church. And there's people who say that, you know, as long as I'm listening to some teaching somewhere, I don't have any need for preaching. But Jesus Christ commands that we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why is that? What are we assembling for? Well, some people think we're assembling for fellowship. And yes, the fellowship of the saints is important. But the structure of worship is clear. What is it? It's preaching, it's praying, it's singing. Why do we assemble? We assemble to hear the word preached. The gospel is paramount. It is top in the order of service in the church of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit interacts through his ministers. The Holy Spirit teaches and applies his word in a way that listening to the audio Bible isn't going to accomplish, in a way that reading the text is not going to accomplish. The Holy Spirit takes his word and directs it in exactly the way it needs to be to the place it needs to be so that it hits me in my heart, so that it hits you in your heart. It brings conviction. It brings conviction of sin that's unknown to the man speaking and unknown to your brother or sister sitting next to you. But the Holy Spirit takes his word and he applies it. It brings conviction. It brings understanding. It brings knowledge of the Son of God. And that's why it is that so often during the preaching of the gospel, sinners are brought to acknowledge their sinful condition. They're brought to acknowledge their need of a Savior. And God uses the gospel to awaken those to righteousness in a very real way. The preaching of the gospel matters. It's a gift given to men. Jesus wasn't neglectful of this truth or this reality in his own teaching. He talked about John the Baptist and he said there's never been a greater man born of a woman than John the Baptist. And he says... The law and the prophets, they were until John. But since that time, the kingdom of heaven is preached and every man presseth into it. Jesus says the gospel is preached. As a result of the gospel being preached, people are coming into the kingdom of heaven. The gospel matters. The apostle Paul writes by inspiration to the Roman church. And what does he say in the first chapter? He says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. The gospel matters. And how is the gospel proclaimed? It's proclaimed through the ministry of the word. This is a great gift that God has given. He's given it to the church. And he's given it for the purpose of building up and strengthening the church. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, a complete man, a whole man. And what's a perfect man? A man who reaches the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's literally transforming us sanctifying us and making us like Jesus Christ. So when do we not need this ministry of the word? When we're made like Christ. And when is that going to be? Well, not while you and I are breathing and living. When do you need to hear the gospel? You need it today. You need it tomorrow. You need it the next day. And in your ancient years, 
when you can no longer do the things you can now, when you no longer have the, the strength, the ability, the zeal, when you're old and you're broken down, may you be like John Newton when the question was asked. And he said, I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I should be. But praise God, I'm not what I once was. Why? Because the gospel was preached and he heard it. God opened his mind, opened his ears, and changed his life by his Holy Spirit through the word and made him more than he otherwise would be. But you know what he desired even in that ancient age? He desired the word. He desired God to work in him through the word, the ministry of the word, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he says, I don't judge myself by any other man's standard, any other man's measure. Why? Because the measure I'm measured by is the measure of Jesus Christ. I need to be Christ in this world. And I haven't yet attained that. In the Philippian letter, he says, I haven't attained. I press toward the mark of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, if Paul hasn't attained it, Rest assured, we haven't attained it. So what do we do? We press toward the mark. So we seek the knowledge of the Son of God, and we seek it through the preaching of his word. We seek it through the study of his word. How can we make the most effective use of the, use of the ministry of the word? Well, we do that through studying. We do that through familiarizing ourselves with the word. So that when the minister is speaking, the Holy Spirit works in our minds and our hearts and brings to our mind related scriptures and topics. And we begin to feed on that internally. God is working all of this together. But it's prompted and directed through the ministry of the word. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness wherein they, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. He invokes this image of children, and that's appropriate. Those of us who have had little children know that little kids will believe anything. They'll believe anything until they get old enough to be jaded and realize that People will lie to them. We also know that little children need repetition. Teaching children is not a matter of doing it one time. If it were, school wouldn't be divided into 12 grades because in a school curriculum from kindergarten through fifth grade, they teach the exact same thing every year, hoping someday it'll stick. And when those poor little kids get to be about 9 or 10 years old, all of them are expected to have reached the maturity level to understand basic math and how to read. But it's through repetition over and over and over again. Well, that's also how we are. Some people criticize preaching because it often contains the same basic message. It seems like the preacher says the same things over and over and over again. And sometimes as preachers, we feel like we're saying the same things over and over and over again. And about the time I start feeling really bad because I always end up going to this text and quoting this text, and maybe I need to get some new material or, or branch out a little bit, somebody will come up and say, I really appreciated you sharing that text today. I never heard that before, which is kind of discouraging because that person has been sitting in the congregation and heard me quote that text at least 15 times. The Lord uses repetition. Why? Because we're children. 
But the gospel is given not just to convert the ungodly and turn them from darkness to light, but to continue to shine that light in our souls that we henceforth be no more children, that we grow up so we're not tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Satan is abroad in the world seeking to deceive, seeking to turn people astray. And people fall by the wayside every day. The gospel shores us up against that by making us mature enough to understand and to have a deep-seated, deep-rooted theology of God and of his word and understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ so that when Antichrist comes knocking, we reject him because we believe in Christ, the son of the living God, because we know him. And because we know him, we won't receive another that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. By the slight of men and cunning craftiness wherein they lie and wait to deceive. When I think about this, I think about the story of Pinocchio and how in the Disney version that fox comes and lures him away and tells him about everything wonderful out there in the world. Slight and craftiness, cunning craftiness wherein they lie and wait to deceive. If we're not shored up in the word of God, if we don't know God's word, we're going to fall when that deceit comes calling. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself, in love. Kind of wrapping up the context of this scripture, it starts with He ascended up on high, He led captivity captive, He gave gifts unto men. The gifts that He gave were gifts of the ministry. But where were they given? They were given in and to the church of Jesus Christ. And He brings it back to the church of Jesus Christ, the body. The body here at Temple. The body, wherever the body may come together, is given the gifts of the ministry of the word to edify them, to build them up, to build you up in the unity of the faith and build you up to the measure of a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So you won't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. So you'll be stable. So you'll be founded and grounded in truth. So you won't be led astray and carried about with every wind of doctrine. But speaking the truth in love, this is about the body, may grow up into him in all things. When we hear the truth, when we understand the truth, we speak the truth. And we speak that truth one to another. And we do it always in love. Why? Because we realize our need one for another. And that's where he began the chapter, after all. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, not as ministers, but as believers, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How do we do that? We keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by speaking truth. Speaking truth one to another, not avoiding one another, not avoiding the difficult matters, but speaking truth to one another in love. He brings us back to the church. From whom the whole body, from Christ, speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, 
from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body to the edifying of itself in love. What's a healthy church? A healthy church which is is one that has received the gift of God through the ministry of the word to the point that that word lives in them, in each member, so that we speak the truth one to another and we do it in love and we grow up together. And this body that was given the gift of the ministry for the edifying of the saints is now edifying itself in love. That is, the word has taken root so that we're speaking these things one to another and the word of God is living and active in us. And that's when we know that we're healthy. That's when we know that we're strong. That's when we know that as a church of Jesus Christ, Christ is present with us and among us. Now, this was true for this Ephesian church. Paul prayed it for him. He, he, he enters this, this chapter in this context in chapter 3, saying, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might in his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. What's he doing? He's praying that God would build them up into a church, his body that they would be strengthened, that they would be edified. He then tells them how that's going to happen. And it did happen. The church at Ephesus grew to be a strong church, a church that was a great witness of God's presence, of God's truth, of God's love. And the church grew strong. And 30 years lapsed. And the church was still strong in their doctrine, their understanding. They were strong in the foundation of what they had received. The ministry of the word had been mighty among them, first through Paul and then through others who had followed. But then in the Revelation letter, John is inspired to write as truly the the voice of God. And he's told to the angel or pastor of the church at Ephesus, the messenger to the church at Ephesus, write, these things saith Christ. I know your works and your labor and your patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and has tried them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars and has borne and has patience and for my, my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. What'd they do? They left the knowledge of the Son of God behind. They had a knowledge of doctrine. They had a knowledge of truth. They were orthodox. They were performing their duties to a fault. But their unity was found in documents and their unity was found in tradition and their unity was found in their identity as a church and their identity was no longer found in Jesus Christ. And their love for Jesus Christ had grown cold. Why? Because they were no longer living in the word. They were no longer living on the word. And the ministry of the word had grown cold among them. And what's the message? Return and do your first works, or else I'll remove the candlestick from your midst. It's paramount that the ministry of the word be valued. It's paramount that the ministry of the word be present. It's paramount that we recognize the gifts that God has given in his church and that we seek after, as he says in the Corinthian letter, the best gifts. 
Thank you for your time this morning. I know I've gone way over, uh, but I got here late. Uh, Let's go to Lord in prayer one more time. Almighty Heavenly Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bless us together and cause us to seek you in your word. And Father, I ask that you would guide your ministry and guide your churches. And Father, bless this church that they might seek you. And Father, that you might edify them through your word and through their communion one with another. And Father, we give you praise. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.